Hello, and welcome to the Wild Wonder Podcast, where we seek to democratize and demystify holistic practices by speaking with today's leading practitioners. I am your host, Kristen Yorka, and today I'm excited to present Swami Chidananda, who's here to answer the age-old question, how do I find my dharma? Or in other words, how do I find my life's purpose? So let's begin. Welcome to the Wild Wonder Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. It's so good to have you. I actually feel really laid back about this conversation because I had the privilege of spending what feels like a week with you or a good like 72 hours. Um, so there wasn't, that was my prep for this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was a lovely time Yeah, in my own. Um, for our listeners, um, Swami was here for a Bhagavad Gita intro to Bhagavad Gita workshop at Miami Life Center that I just um, had the privilege of going to with my family, um, where we not only got to meet each other, but I really got to go deeper into the Gita and how that, it always felt like the book that tells people like what their Dharma is or like what their life purpose is or like how to find it. And I know it was pivotal in your life as you shared with us. Um, would you like to share a little bit of how you went from like investment banker to Swami? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was uh, born in South India, in Mysore. But at a very young age, my mother moved to the United States. And so I, I grew up in the States. And coming from a from an Indian background, uh, coming from a, a culture that is not, let's say, American, it was very difficult in the early years to, to fit in. And a lot of that required me to let go of my own identity, my own culture. So I became very, very westernized. You know, there's mm. like a saying, kind of like a coconut, right? Uh, brown on the outside, but white inside. <laughs> and that's kind of how it was. And also, the thing is, when whenever uh, people move to different countries, the initial generation is really focused on making sure there's food on the table, making mm -hmm. sure that they have jobs. So the idea of um, practicing their traditions, learning more about the philosophy, it's just not so prevalent. Mm -hmm. And so for me, for my mother, it was really about that. How can we survive M much more than talking about the philosophical concepts of Sanatana Dharma or Hinduism? So growing up, I really didn't re know so much about my culture. And what I knew was very, very base level. Uh, there's a joke that the busiest time of the year in a temple is right before a finals exam. So it's this idea that we go to these places to make business deals. And I didn't know the philosophy of the Gita. Uh, of course, I've heard of the Gita, but I didn't know the deepness of it. And so growing up, I, I pretty much was an atheist, uh, if not an agnostic. And I was really just focused on material gratification, making as much money as possible, being in relationships. And, and for some time, it was a very successful endeavor. I ended up graduating in the top of my class, ended up going to uh, work in investment banking. I was working in mergers and acquisitions, making a lot of money. And at the time, um, I was also uh, 
in a rela- in a serious relationship. And there came a moment where uh, that relationship sort of ended, and I didn't know kind of where to turn. I didn't really know um, what to do, and I didn't have a spiritual background. So of course we turned to the world, mm-hmm. and I was drinking a lot, partying a lot, doing drugs, and um, a cousin of mine came and visited me from India, and he saw how I was living my life, and he said, "You have to change." It's not going to be good. So I asked him, "Okay, what can I do to change?" And he said, "Read this book." And he gave me a book called "The Autobiography of a Yogi," and that book really changed my life. It changed, shifted my perspective on on the tradition of Sanatana Dharma. It shifted my perspective on on the the uh, the beauty of the Bhagavad Gita. And it made me sort of want to go on a on a search, on a journey to learn more about this ancient tradition. And so, with that, I I had I had um, sort of just um, left my job. I had um, decided I'm just going to go and I'm going to explore, and I wanted to travel the world. And so, I remember the last day I was in uh, I was in Ohio at this time. I was saying bye to my friends and to my mother. And my mother looked at me, and she just started to cry. And I said, "Why are you crying?" And she said, "It's because I have a feeling I will not see you for a very long time." I said, "No, I'll be back in a few weeks. You know, don't worry." That no, I, I won't see you for a long time. Was so she religious? This... Sorry to interrupt, but was mm-hmm. she religious at all? Not so much. No. I think if she ever, if she was religious, she didn't really put it on me because she mm-hmm. wanted. You know, she wanted me to to have friends. She wanted me to get along with the people. I was growing up in the Midwest, so you can mm-hmm. imagine the social pressure. So mm-hmm. I believe she was religious, but never pushed it on me. Okay. And you know, mothers always have like an intuition. So even if they're not spiritual, you know, what is spiritual? Right. Spirituality is just really love. So they they love their children, and that love allows them to be intuitive. In ways that most people aren't, so I think that love that she had made her feel, or made her understand that a shift was happening. If she, even though she could not vocalize it, or I couldn't vocalize、mm. it, there was some shift that was definitely going on. So, did you feel it too? That initial, like, maybe I'm not coming back from this. No, or not no, coming no, back no. in the same I, way. No, I I felt I'd be back in a few weeks.、Oh. Yeah, I did not feel anything. I just thought I was just going to go for a little while and come back. But she intuitively, I think, understood more than me at that time. And so I ended up in India. I was planning to go to India, then Germany, then France and Spain and many other places. And in India, I ended up meeting my spiritual teacher, whose name is Paramahamsa Swami Vishwananda. And I came across him in very, very just an interesting circumstance. He was actually there for an event that happens every hundred and forty-four years,、oh, which、wow. is called the Maha Kumbh Mela. And it's a, a certain moment in time where there are certain planetary alignments. And it said if you take a dip in the Ganga, which is a, a tributary that runs across India, that it fast-forwards you on your spiritual journey. And so all of the great saints from around the world had come there because it was really a once in a lifetime, maybe once in a in a 
twice a lifetime um, opportunity. And so there I found myself. And I had no idea when I was leaving in the United States that I that this event was even happening. Mm. So coincidentally, I was there just as this once-in-a-lifetime event was happening. And so there I met my spiritual teacher. And I would say that I had this awakening of love. I felt something that I've never experienced before. And this is the beautiful thing about great masters, enlightened beings, is that they radiate a love that's not of this world. Because most of the time, human love is based on expectations and attachments. But divine love is just based on unconditioned, unconditional um, love to everyone. And when you feel that, you feel a, a difference between the two. Mm -hmm. So for the first time, I felt this unconditional love. And it was so beautiful that I, I wanted to feel more of it. <laughs> and so I asked him um, what I should do. And he said, come and visit me in the ashram. And he had an ashram and has an ashram in Germany. So right from India, I went to Germany. And in Germany, I had many, many, um, I was only supposed to be there for a few weeks. But then a few weeks turned into a month, a month turned into a few months. And the next thing I knew, I was there for eight years, just living oh, wow. with him. And I never went back to the United States. I never, I never met my family. My mother did come and visit me a couple of years later, but I never went back. And during this time is when I became initiated as a sannyasi or what is referred to as a monk. And then over time, I was given the title of a rishi. And then eventually um, my teacher gave me the title of a swami. And so, um, yeah, after eight years, I came back to the United States and I started to speak about spirituality, about sanatana dharma, which is another name used for Hinduism. And then we slowly started to create a center in New York. That's where I'm talking to you from. That's why I have the hat, my <laughs> cold here. You look colder than me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. In that way, I'm missing Miami. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we're building a, a, an ashram here for people to come and to spend time. So that's kind of a Reader's Digest version of the story. Yeah, there was there was one part when you were speaking while you were in Miami that in my mind I was like, oh man, I'm a little jealous. And I'm sure everybody in this room is a little jealous when you said that your spiritual teacher told you you were going to be a Swami. And I was mm -hmm. like, what some people would pay to have somebody be like, you know what, here's your life path, you know. Yeah. Very true. It's very true. I was lucky in the sense that I was able to feel and understand what is it that um what is it that I was born to do and you know many people don't get that opportunity but I would say many people intuitively know mm -hmm. but intuition is clouded by our our um our limitations that we place on ourselves right so fears and angers and and anxieties cloud our ability to really feel what we already know Right. We already know what we're born to to really do in this. And that's the that's beautiful thing about being lucky enough to find a spiritual teacher or to find a spiritual way. Because the guidance doesn't necessarily just have to come from a human or, or a physical human being. Mm -hmm. The guidance can come from a book. It can come from a pre-existing scripture. 
right, can come from teachers that might not be enlightened, but can give some guidance. So even if you don't have a, a guru per se, life always finds a way to let you know if you're on the right path or to let you know what is it that you're really meant to do in this world. But it, but it's up to each one of us as to if we um, are intuitive enough to, to take it, embrace it, and, and move forward with it. I'm actually, you just reminded me, I'm reading a book, an advanced copy of Soul Bloom by Rain Wilson. He's an actor, um, but a very spiritual dude. Like he mm -hmm. re, like heavily studied several religions. And in the part that I was reading, it says that, six, I think I get statistics wrong all the time. I'm not a numbers person. So I think it said 60% of Americans now would call themselves spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. And he starts to talk about the pitfalls of that because we can get we kind of get to go into this giant vending machine of religion and we just like pick what we like and very few of us settle on one path. Do you see that as a challenge too, to finding your dharma if you're mm -hmm. kind of like going from one religion to another or one spirituality practice to another? What would you yeah. recommend? So I would recommend something actually called spiritual orthodoxy. <laughs> and essentially what that means is that um, when we go on the spiritual path, what separates somebody who's spiritual or somebody who's religious is also their their dogmas, right? So if somebody who's very religious will say, okay, this is the only way. This is the yeah. one book, one teacher, one practice. And if it's if this is the way to, to re realize heaven or yourself, if you don't realize this, you're going to go to hell or you're going to suffer. Mm -hmm. right. So that's the that's sort of the the setback of religion is that you're forced to be in one path and essentially deny all other paths. Um, spirituality allows us to be a bit more eclectic in the sense that okay, um, many paths lead to the same truth. Mm -hmm. But when I say spiritual orthodoxy, is that the problem with that, as you rightfully said, is that we have a danger sometimes of choosing many different paths. We say digging many holes for water, but never going deep enough into one specific hole uh, to, to have the, the water come. And then we waste our time and energy digging many holes. Mm -hmm. So spiritual orthodoxy is there's a beauty in following a tradition that has been around for a long time because tradition has somehow withstood the test of time if people have been practicing it for thousands and thousands of years there are definitely parts of it which can help us right because the truth can the truth always comes out that is what is real everything else falls away so Within all of these religions, if they've lasted for thousands of years, there are components of practices that can help us to realize the truth. Mm -hmm. and, and to go into these practices and to do them sincerely, you will gain a lot out of that. But as you're practicing it, be open-minded. Don't judge others. Don't become dogmatic. Let others live their life and let them follow their own way. And so that's, for me, spiritual orthodoxy. As you can see, I'm very, very orthodox in the sense that I'm dressed in a certain way. We follow a certain practice. I teach Kriya Yoga, which is a 5,000-year-old tradition from Mahavatar Babaji. We practice Vaishnavism, which is a, 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 a path within 
uh, Sanatana Dharma, we, we study the Vedantic philosophy of Vishishta Advaita. Uh, we chant the mantra Om Namo Narayanaya, which is thousands of years old. But at the same time, if you were to ask me what you think about Christianity, I'd say, yeah, no problem. And that's for me is the mm. difference. Because the orthodoxy part is important. You know, the mantra Om Namo Narayanaya, it's not some guy in a basement just saying, you know, today I've come up with this mantra, I'm going to share it and let's see what happens. No, it's been chanted for thousands of years and people have seen benefits from it. So I would encourage people to be spiritual, open-minded, but also be orthodox in the sense that find a practice that has withstood the test of time and go into that. Mm. with an open awareness and there you'll make the most spiritual um, gain. What, what I see often, and I speak from experience in the beginning of my spiritual trajectory, was that I would find something until it didn't work and then I would try to move on to something else until it didn't work. Um, is there a length of time that you should give a practice in order to figure out if, it, if it's vibing with you or not? No, <laughs> that's the problem, <laughs> is that you have to be a, a gambler when it goes on the spiritual path. Because mm. Sometimes you have to put your chips in without necessarily understanding if a result is guaranteed or not. Mm. You, there you have to go more with intuition. Um, so, you know, it's a, there's, a, there's a quote that says you work, 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 and then it's done. Sometimes mm. certain spiritual paths, you actually, more things come up. The, rather than feeling something, you go more into the negativity. And that's okay because that will help you in the long term. So I would, it's, it's really an inner reflection to be, to look at yourself and say, okay, do I truly believe that this teacher or this path is going to help me? Yes, I'm struggling. I don't mm -hmm. feel anything. But am I growing? Am I finding more clarity? Has this helped me in some way? If so, go deeper. If you intuitively don't feel it, then look for something else. It's okay in the beginning to search and to look. Of course, you have to do that because you have to find something that fits you. Mm -hmm. But when you really feel it and you're like, okay, this is the one, then go deep into it and keep going because um, you never know what is just waiting maybe a little bit of, further on in the path. And if you give up too quick, then you don't get to that space. But this is the really difficult part of the spiritual journey. It is somewhat of a gamble. Um, sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't. And even if you don't get it right, it's okay. Because if you're doing it with sincerely, it's always helping you to move forward. Mm -hmm. It's always helping you to go deeper in your journey one way or another. And you're touching on intuition, but I think where people get caught up and we haven't touched on it yet is also the role of ego. A lot of people mm. say, well, how do I know if it's in intuition or my ego or intuition or my mind? How do you make yeah, that it's, distinction? It's not easy. And that's the whole name of the game with spirituality is that doing the spiritual practices helps you to strengthen your intuition and detach from the ego. And the more you do your practices, the more your intuition will come to the surface. But this is where you need some type of spiritual guidance. Because mm -hmm. if you do it without any spiritual guidance, you can go into a fantasy in your mind. 
you can create a whole fantasy where I'm listening to my heart. It's just mm-hmm. your ego. Right. But if you have a true spiritual teacher, that teacher is referred to as the hammer because they bring the hammer to you and they call you out when you're in delusion. Mm-hmm. And so I was lucky enough to find a great teacher that brought the hammer down when it was needed. So in that way, first initial stages, find a scripture, find a book, find something that can help you to grow. But as you go deeper, look for a spiritual teacher that can guide you and can bring the hammer down when you go into delusion. And if you really feel that they can help, then stick with them even through the hard times because then you will really progress. But it's like making gold, you know, to make gold, you have to hammer it a a bit first. And then when it becomes more malleable, then something beautiful can come from that. Right. And for those that have not yet found a spiritual teacher, Mm -hmm. what is the role of, especially now during this, we keep hearing about the loneliness epidemic, right? There's Mm -hmm. maybe seekers or spiritual people, but mostly they're practicing on their own. Yeah. What is the role of finding community or sangha in the in the role of the spiritual path? Yeah, sangha is usually hugely important. The sangha is usually built upon already a pre-established set of teachings or a teacher. So, for example, you know, usually if I have a guru, my sangha is that community that is also having the same guru and following those same practices. It becomes a community. Now, it doesn't have to be around a teacher. It can be around like the Bhagavad Gita, for example. So you can, you can build a community around the Gita without necessarily a teacher. You can build a community around Ashtanga Yoga, right? Um, and there you can find guidance from teachers that can help you to go deeper. So look for a Sangha that shares the same values and beliefs and teachings as you. It doesn't have to be specific to a teacher or a scripture, but has the same value system. That's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, there's a difference between a guru and a teacher. Guru means, guru means darkness, ru means light. So guru means the remover of darkness, instiller of light. Right? So these are enlightened beings. I would say a yoga teacher is not a guru. There's somebody that can help you on the path. And that's okay as well. If you find some people that you trust that inspire you, you know, see them as teachers that can, you can create a sangha around and go deeper in your path. That's also okay. Following a living guru is not for everybody. But following a set of teachings, finding some guides that can help you, that's already a beautiful start. We've mentioned a few times now the Bhagavad Gita. For those listeners that aren't familiar, could you give like a very abridged version of what the Bhagavad Gita is? Sure. The Bhagavad Gita is, um, is a conversation that happens on a battlefield right before a warrior is about to go into war. And the warrior is um, a bowman. And the warrior fights on a chariot that has a chariot driver who is controlling the horses and guiding the chariot during the war so the warrior can can fight. Before the battle happens, that warrior, whose name is Arjuna, is overcome with grief, anxiety, and confusion as to whether or not he wants to fight. 
So with this confusion, he asks his chariot driver to take him to the middle of the battlefield so he can take a closer look at who he's about to fight. In that moment, he ultimately decides he does not want to fight. And then in this moment, to encourage him to fight, the chariot driver starts to teach him. That chariot driver is not just any human, but it's said to be the representation of the divine who has taken on this form as a chariot driver to guide this warrior who is in confusion. So even though there are um, conversations about whether or not it existed or not, or how long, or, or all of these things, it's not so, re it's not so relevant because the symbology is already beautiful. That warrior whose name is Arjuna represents each one of us. We're covered by illusion. We have forgotten who we truly are. And in that illusion, we are confused about whether or not we should do our duty and how to do our duty. Krishna represents that divinity that has somehow come into our life through grace, who's trying to teach us and guide us in a certain way. He represents that guru or that scripture or that sangha that has come into your life. The warriors that Arjuna is looking at represents all of our limitations, our fears, our angers, our jealousy, our greed, our lust. And all of the warriors that are on his side represent all of our positive qualities that we use to help us to do our duty. And the battlefield represents our body. So every day when we wake up, we have our negative qualities and our positive qualities inside of us. We become that warrior who can choose, will I let my negative qualities guide my life or will I let my positive qualities guide my life? But this choosing is very difficult. But then through grace of the divine, we have the power, we have the ability to say, I will choose my positive quality. So here we see that the Bhagavad Gita is not just about grace, but also effort. The mm. so grace is there to help us to choose the positive qualities, but we still have to move forward. We still have to fight. We still have mm. to engage in our duty, but grace is there but effort is required, right? So Krishna, who is this chariot driver, he's not telling the warrior, you know, I'll fight for you. Mm -hmm. He's telling the warrior, you pick up your bow and you fight, but I will help you. I will tell you how to do it in a way where it will ultimately help you to realize who you are. So that's a short description <laughs> of how we can look at the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, perfectly short. That's why you teach the Bhagavad Gita. I don't think I could have made it that abridged. <laughs> but for me, every time I've picked up the Bhagavad Gita, it's been at a time where I'm at some kind of crossroads, where I'm mm -hmm. very conflicted about my dharma or by my life purpose, or I'm struggling with continuing on. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the Bhagavad Gita speaks to us in those moments where we seem to be a little conflicted? Because it is, Arjuna represents each one of us, right? He represents that confused state of mind. That's why we, we can, it's so easy for us to connect with Arjuna mm -hmm. because it might not be that we're fighting our family members, but we are confronted with situations that don't have a yes or no or black or white outcome, right? Arjuna has 
to fight, but that means he has to also kill. So there is a sacrifice that is required in the action. So this is what we call dharma sankata, which means we're confronted with a moral situation that has no predefined positive outcome. Um, the outcome is either only going to be what can I do to cause the least amount of entanglement in my life? Hmm. So that's why we can relate because, you know, if we look at our life, it's never easy. If I get a new job, what does that mean? I might have to sacrifice my time with my child. Hmm. If I get a new job, I might have to give up making more money. If I go in a relationship with somebody, that means I might have to give up something else. So in this way, the reason why we identify with Arjuna it's because we see in him a situation that requires some type of sacrifice that's not black and white. And so we can relate to him in that way. And we see that Krishna is, never, is not, going to, he's not going to guarantee a positive outcome. He's not going to change Arjuna's situation he's confronted with in that moment. Hmm. He's only going to help him to embrace it. To embrace it in a way where he will find peace in that particular moment. Right? We're not going to worry about the future. We're not going to mm. worry about the past. Destiny will happen how it needs to. But how do you embrace this present moment? That's what Krishna helps Arjuna with. He gives him a set of yoga techniques that helps him to embrace his duty and to move forward, understanding that some sacrifice will also be required in whatever decision he takes. And embracing our duties is sometimes the hardest part, um, especially I feel in the culture with, in which we live. I feel like when we were in your workshop, a lot of folks were questioning, well, is it my duty if I'm not succeeding at it? Is it my duty if I'm not making money at it? Which is a huge, huge mm -hmm. question people have. So how do we overcome those challenges? Because as you said then, and I think you're saying now, is that our duty isn't necessarily something that's going to bring us like material rewards, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. not right away. Yeah, our duty, we should see it as something that has been given to us where we can be of service to the world and which will help us to unconditionally love. That's it. Is that what we have been given in this moment? Is that helping us to love more? It's not, is that helping us to make money more? It's not any of those things. Is it helping us to love more? And this is where I talk about grace of the divine. We must allow something greater than ourselves to guide our lives. There's a beautiful quote in the Mahabharata, which is in the Bhagavad, uh, which uh, the Bhagavad Gita is in, which says, Dharma protects those who protect it. So we can just say love protects those who protect it. So if we love unconditionally, trust that the divine will make sure you have a roof on your head and food on the table. You will always be protected if you try your best to love. And if that happens, Krishna is not saying, Arjuna, everything is going to be great. Arjuna actually loses his son in the 18-day war that is going to happen after the Gita is given. He's going to suffer a lot during those 18 days. But at the end of the day, he will become victorious. And he will have the grace to perceive the divine in his dharma. 
And that's ultimately what we can hope for, is to feel the love of the divine, to feel our own inner bliss as we step into our duty. And so we must have faith and trust if we act, if we move forward from a space of unconditional love, that the divine will take care of us. We might not live in a mansion, we might not drive a Lamborghini, but we'll always have what we need and we'll always have what we need to love more and to go deeper into our spiritual path. And if that means to be successful and make a million dollars, okay, it will happen. But this has to do with our karmas, right? Our past entanglements, what needs to happen in this life. Those are things out of our control. So I would say if you try your best to unconditionally love, that love will protect you. That love will make sure that you have everything that you need to continue to do your duty. I feel like I need that tattooed on my body, but <laughs> I'm sure there are practices. At least my morning practice is a way to remember exactly that. Um, so I could go through my day and not feel like I'm doing something wrong or not doing the correct duty because I'm not immediately rewarded, whether it's through love or other means. Are there practices that folks can do daily that will help remind them that the purpose is to love well yeah firstly also when you unconditionally love you will also be tested because you will because unconditional love means you love no matter what right so that always is going to be a test can i still love if my the outcomes are not coming out the way that i expected will i still have faith if things are not working out for me in a certain way so those initial tests will always be there to test our sincerity. But if it's strong, we always will come through from it, right? The divine is not a masochist. It's not that it wants you to suffer. The divine is just trying to purify us from all of our limitations. And the best way to purify is through a little bit of suffering. Because there's only two ways to grow spiritually, suffering or grace. We don't take advantage of grace, suffering is there. Sometimes suffering is a purification that helps us to perceive and remove whatever limitations we're holding on to. If we're able to move forward, then things will always work out for us. We should not fear if we act from a space of love. Now, the best way to, to do that is through different sadhana. Sadhana are spiritual practices. So for example, I teach Atma Kriya Yoga, which is a spiritual practice that helps us to go from the mind to the heart. And it carries the blessings of the Kriya Yoga masters that come and guide us in that process. Because sometimes some of those negative emotions are so strong that we ourselves are not able to overcome. Like an ocean that you're trying to swim across and you're not able to. So even in your spiritual practices, always seek the grace of the divine. And so the Kriya that, that we teach is infusing the practitioner with the grace of the Kriya Yoga masters that come and help us move through things we ourselves can't hold. So that's one thing. Another thing that we, cheat, uh, that we teach is mantra chanting. So chanting a specific mantra over and over again. The mantra creates and carries a certain vibration that helps us to um, push back those negative qualities that are influencing our ability to love. So those are two things that we do. 
But there are many, many practices, many, many different traditions and sadhanas. And I would encourage people listening to choose one that best resonates with you and to go deeper into that. And if you feel they're working, go. If you feel it's not working, either take a gamble and push through or look for something else <laughs> that you feel could be of uh, even more benefit for you. Because sometimes, you know, a practice can come for a moment in time and then you're ready to let that go and then step into something else. That happens as well. Yeah, I've always heard, and you can correct me, that with mantra practice, we should give each other, we should give ourselves 40 days. Would you say that's a good mm. amount of time? That's a good time. That's a good time. That's a good time of constant practice. Of constant practice. Mm -hmm. Each mantra also creates certain, creates vibrations in us. So sometimes we chant a mantra, which is what we need in that particular moment to overcome something. Mm. So sometimes mantras are very specifically oriented and sometimes the mantras are not specifically oriented. They're just there to help us to go into the heart. So something like Om Namo Narayanaya, which I teach, that's more of a heart-based mantra. It's mm. not specific to any type of transformation. But sometimes if you go to teachers, they'll give you mantras based on maybe something you need to overcome in that. That also is there. But I would say 40 days of constant practice. And if you feel that it's helping you, then keep going with it. If it's not, then maybe look for another practice. But only after you're consistently practicing it. Right. 40 days is the minimum. I would mm. say more six months to a year mm. of doing a, doing a mantra before you really feel if it's for you or not. That's fair. I feel like people now in this culture of like instant gratification, they're like, oh, I did it for two days. What happened? Like, why am yeah. I not happier? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem with social media and um, Google and YouTube or whatever else it might be. We have instant gratifications at, the, at our fingertips. But Krishna says the spiritual path, following a spiritual practice is like poison in the beginning, but ends in nectar. While material gratification is like nectar in the beginning, but ends in poison. So the spiritual path in the beginning is hard because you have to move through a lot of very base emotions that we've suppressed for lives. But over time, it frees us. But material gratification is you get immediate dopamine kick, but it's not really getting to these warriors that have not been uh, transformed, that have not been overcome yet. They're just being suppressed. I think that's the perfect inspirational ending place. But um, for those that would like to learn more about you, where could they find you? Uh, so uh, on social media, on, on Instagram, it's just Swami Chidananda. If you don't have social media, I'm also doing um, just a, like a YouTube documentary where I speak about the different experiences with my spiritual teacher. It's called The Path of a Swami. Uh, so if you just type it in, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll see some videos come up. Um, and if you're ever in New York and want to come and visit the ashram, you're always welcome to come. Where in you New can York? just send me a message. Uh, in Elmira, New York, it's very close to Ithaca. But you can send me a message on social media and I'll be give more information. Thanks. I'll also put all your information in our show notes to make it easier oh, for thank folks. Thank you. Um, but thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and for speaking with me again. It's always a pleasure.
Thank you so much. Thank you.